Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. Before we start this episode, I want to remind you that you can listen to all of our past episodes of Throwback FDNY by going to our website at www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. Each show has three segments going back in time about FDNY history. And now, let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the loss of five pieces of FDNY apparatus in a fire at the Crystal Palace in 1858. Edward Croker becomes chief of department in 1899, and the origin of the FDNY Bureau of Fire Prevention in 1911. Depending on when you were born and if you lived in New York City, you might recall the New York World's Fairs. There was one in 1939 to 40, and one from 1964 to 1965. Both of those fairs were held in Flushing Meadow Park, where some of the structures still stand. And I've talked about the fire services at the 1939-40 World's Fair in a previous podcast. But New York City was the site of an even earlier World's Fair. In fact, it was the first World's Fair in the United States, although not called that at the time. It was 1853, and the event was held in a building called the Crystal Palace. It was the site of a tremendous fire. First, a little background. In 1849, Britain's Prince Albert came up with an idea to host an international exhibition to display what was considered a leap forward in technology resulting from the Industrial Revolution and to encourage further research and developments. The event would be housed in a unique and huge structure they named the Crystal Palace. It measured 1,848 feet long, 408 feet wide, and was 135 feet high at its highest point, comprising nearly 800,000 square feet. The exhibition, held in 1851, was an enormous success. The building was disassembled and relocated to another site where it stood until destroyed in a fire in 1936. Following England's lead, a group of New York City politicians and businessmen planned the Exhibition of the Industry of All Nations to be held in the city. They even called the U.S. Exhibition Hall the Crystal Palace, just like in the U.K. It was built on the area now occupied by Bryant Park behind the New York Public Library. But at that time, the area where the library now sits was the Croton Reservoir. The lot that the Crystal Palace was built on encompassed almost 13 acres, with the building comprising 1 million square feet, 220,000 square feet larger than its London counterpart. When the exhibition opened, there were 14,000 displays, including such things as Elijah Otis's invention, the safety elevator, photographer Matthew Brady's daguerreotypes, Samuel Colt's revolving pistols, and no less than four fire apparatus. The building itself was constructed of iron and glass. It was thought to be fireproof, which it may have been, but with so many flammable items within it, the amount of fire that could be generated was substantial. One of the events of the exhibition was the demonstration of two steam fire engines. One threw a stream of water to a height of 137 feet, while the other rose to 160 feet. At the conclusion of the exhibition, the building became the venue for many other events. On October 6, 1858, during the annual fair of the American Institute, fire broke out. 
It started near the 42nd Street entrance and was said to have spread very rapidly. It was estimated that about 2,000 people were in the building at the time, all of whom escaped. The New York Fire Department responded and put between 20 and 30 pumpers into operation. Despite the best efforts of the firefighters, the heat that was generated caused the collapse of the entire structure within 30 minutes. Sadly, of the seven pieces of fire apparatus on display in the palace at the time, all but two hose carriages were lost. Those lost were the hose carriages of Eagle Hose Company 1 and Croton Hose Company 6, the pumpers of Gotham Engine Company 16 and Pacific Engine Company 38, and the truck of Mutual Lottery Company 1. The fire was one of the largest in the city at the time, at a location that many of us walked past every day with no clue of the fire, the fair, or the reservoir that gave New Yorkers clean water to drink and to use for fighting fires for centuries to come. The New York City Fire Museum store can be found online at fdnymuseumshop.org. Exclusive merchandise includes our classic, superior quality NYC Fire Museum t-shirt featuring our treasured Brooklyn Engine Company 8 steam pumper and other museum artifacts. The back includes a firefighter scramble that was the museum's original logo. This one-of-a-kind shirt comes in adult sizes from small to double XL. Proceeds help support our preservation and educational programs. To browse additional apparel and products that celebrate the history of the fire department in New York City, go to fdnymuseumshop.org. That's fdnymuseumshop.org. Now more than ever, the New York City Fire Museum needs your support to pursue our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Now back to the episode. It is difficult to sum up the career of Edward Franklin Croker in this short amount of time. Appointed to the FDNY on June 22, 1884, at the age of 21, he shocked everyone with his promotion to assistant foreman, now called lieutenant, just 47 days later, and with equal speed to foreman, today's captain, just six months after that. This rapid advancement was said to have been for one reason only, that he was the nephew of the most powerful political figure in New York City at the time, Richard Croker, head of Tammany Hall, who served as fire commissioner from 1883 to 1887. And while this might be true, the fact was that over the next 27 years, Chief Croker proved himself time and time again to be an outstanding firefighter and leader. Chief Croker was born in White Plains, New York in 1863. His father was born in Ireland and was an engineer on the Harlem Railroad. His mother, Adelaide Matilda Franklin, was born in New York. Her grandfather, Edward's great-grandfather, was Thomas Franklin, a member of the fire department beginning in 1783 and served as chief engineer from 1811 through 1824. Thomas's brother, Walter, rented his home on Cherry Street, a street that no longer exists in that area, to a man by the name of George Washington, who used it as the first presidential mansion in the United States. So Chief Croker hailed from one of the oldest and most famous families in New York. When Croker was appointed chief of department on May 1st, 1899, the specter of nepotism was cast upon him once again, but he went on to fulfill his role with extreme diligence. Croker epitomized the dichotomy of a firefighter, 
that is, to put their expertise to use in fire prevention. He was an outspoken advocate of improving fire safety throughout the city's commercial and residential buildings. As early as 1894, he testified before the Tenement House Committee that a fatal fire was due in part to, quote, the combustible nature of the building and its open construction, end quote. The culmination of this was when he used the fatal sweatshop fire in Newark, New Jersey, to once again call attention to the threat of such a catastrophe being repeated in New York. Just four months later, it did at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. As a result, he retired and turned over command of the department to Chief John Kenlon. Croker spent the next 40 years in the fire prevention business. His company was a leader in the field and still exists today. In 1912, he authored this seminal book, Fire Prevention. Every October, we celebrate Fire Prevention Week, so it is appropriate to highlight a figure in FDNY history that epitomized the message of being fire safe. The New York City Fire Museum shop offers a wide selection of museum souvenirs and FDNY licensed products. To acknowledge the 20th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001, and the 343 members of the FDNY who gave their lives that day, we are offering several commemorative items including a Maltese cross decal and lapel pin, a 9-11 Memorial Challenge coin, and a beautiful high-quality 343 t-shirt. Proceeds from all sales help fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate, and to remember the brave men and women of the FDNY, not just on September 11th, but every day. You can make purchases at the museum or online by visiting our website, www.nycfiremuseum.org forward slash shop. Many people have heard of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. It was the topic of one of our earlier podcasts. But while it is remembered for the tragic loss of 146 lives, mostly young immigrant women, the impacts it had on American society and on FDNY history are often forgotten. As we just spoke about, prior to the fire, Chief Edward Croker cautioned that such buildings throughout New York City were fire traps, and he advocated for robust laws that would ensure adequate fire prevention and safety practices. It took this devastating loss of life to finally institute the changes he called for. The foundation was laid for changes in fire prevention through a piece of New York City legislation called the Sullivan Hoey Fire Prevention Law. It gave the fire commissioner the authority to enact strong fire prevention measures. The most immediate steps had a positive impact on fire safety. In fact, in the second six months of 1911, fires dropped to 36 a day, down from 43 a day. As stated in the 1911 annual report, quote, this is the first sudden and substantial reduction in the rate of fires in the history of the greater city, end quote. It and subsequent related laws address such fire safety issues as the prohibition of smoking in workplaces, exit doors that opened outward, and staircases separated from workspaces. But of the greatest significance to our discussion was the establishment of a fire prevention bureau within the FDNY on March 16, 1912, one year virtually to the day after the Triangle Fire. Commissioner Joseph Johnson swore in 67 inspectors, one chief examiner, and four examiners. He appointed Deputy Chief William Guerin as the acting chief of fire prevention. The headquarters for the Bureau was set up in a building across the street from fire headquarters, then located at East 67th Street on the upper floors of the firehouse of Engine 29, Ladder 16, and the Fire College, a firehouse that's still in service today. A committee was formed, including Chief Guerin, Chief of Department John Kenlin, and Deputy Commissioner George Olvaney, that was charged with establishing standards for auxiliary fire appliances, fireproof partitions, 
fire escapes, stairways, halls, passageways, aisles, and enclosures for stairwells, elevators, and dumbwaiters. The fire commissioner had the authority to enact and enforce these standards, unlike today, that requires an extensive review and city approval process. Things were moving fast and in the right direction. There were some bureaucratic hurdles that had to be resolved, including having the top positions of the Bureau exempted from civil service requirements, thereby legally allowing the commissioner to make the appointments. Started in 1912, the FDNY Bureau of Fire Prevention is currently under the command of Assistant Chief Joseph Jardin, who also happens to be a professional engineer. At the present time, the Bureau employs 300 inspectors at various levels, as well as a force of support personnel. Working in tandem with the FDNY Foundation, the FDNY distributes free combination smoke and carbon monoxide alarms to New Yorkers who need them. The best way to survive a fire is to be warned early, to escape the areas on fire, closing all doors behind you, and to call 911 to summon the fire department. The 109-year dedication of the members of the FDNY Bureau of Fire Prevention has made New York one of the most fire-safe cities in the country. We all owe a debt of gratitude to these often unsung heroes of the department. And now it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What happened in 1975 that resulted in the removal of all coin-operated public lockers from airports? The answer could be found in our last episode. Remember, you can listen to that and all previous episodes by going to www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. Your smoke and carbon monoxide alarms can only protect you if they are in working order. Make sure to test them regularly and to change the batteries twice a year when we set our clocks ahead for daylight saving time in the spring and return them to standard time in the fall. We could all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.